All right. In theory, things are live. Someone's going to have to tell me if this is working or not. I don't know. I can't see. Actually, I can. I can see. I'm going to, just in case that's causing some kind of echo. Hey, everyone. Welcome to uh, this December 30th, 2019 episode of Open Space, our last episode for 2019. What a great year. Uh, had a lot of fun and a lot of really big exciting stories have happened this year and a lot of really cool stuff are happening uh, next year so uh, if you want to talk about some of those we can do that uh, if you want to just ask some general questions we can do that before we get into that i just want to let everybody know that i'm uh in three days on Thursday, uh, Chad and I will be flying to Honolulu to attend the American Astronomical Society meeting in uh, in Hawaii uh, with several thousand uh, astronomers. And this is just going to be great. It's going to be like, uh, uh, you know, target rich environment. <laughs> All these astronomers, space scientists, people from NASA are all going to be in this one location and I'll get a chance to interview tons of them for the channel get guest questioners for what we're doing, as well as um, you know, invite new guests for the weekly space hangout and open space. So hopefully we will get uh, a year's worth, well, six months for sure is worth of really interesting information out of this. Um, so hopefully I will be able to take all of you along for the ride with this. So that's a big piece of news. So what I'm asking is hit me with your zinger questions, not here, because it doesn't really, um, uh, the, the chat is sort of hard for me to go through. Uh, but hit with the zinger questions, maybe like I just posted the new QA QA 111. So maybe post your zinger questions there. And then I can take those and, uh, you know, bring them to, to astronomers and people at the at the convention and, uh, and hit them with your questions. So um, again, the zingers, I want the ones that I can't answer. If you've, you know, asked a question and, and you, you know, nobody seems to know the answer. That's the perfect ones. Uh, the second big piece of news is I think we had uh, one of our videos go a little viral. I don't know if it made it to the trending page, but the new one that we did on Betelgeuse just went berserk. Um, we're at three days out and we're at like uh, three days out. Man, did you hear my Canadian accent there? Three days out. Uh, we're at like 260,000 views. So uh, doing really well. Um, uh, and there's no reason why, right? Like who knows? I guess it's because, um, it's about Betelgeuse and there was not a lot of other news there. I'm not sure, but apparently YouTube is really trying to push more away from conspiracy theory videos now and towards more science based stuff. So maybe I'm seeing the benefit of that. Um, <laughs> Horizon brave. Why is the sky blue? Rally scattering. Um, so hit me with your questions, uh, we'll stick around for an hour and, um, whatever you got. Now I got a, two comments that came up, three comments actually came up again and again and again on the Betelgeuse video. So I want to just explain that first. Uh, the first question, this was the one that I got the most, uh, commonly was how can neutrinos get to earth faster than the radiation? Do neutrinos go faster than light? Uh, that was, that's the polite version. There's a lot of really mean versions of that question. Um, very insulting, uh, which is, I guess what happens when your video breaks outside of your existing audience, you're, you're exposed to, I don't know, um, people. 
Um, and uh, so, so the answer here is that what happens is the neutrinos, as we said on several videos, neutrinos can go through um, a light year of lead on average. So they're not stopped by any kind of material. So when they're generated in the core, 99% of the mass of the, of the energy generated by a supernova is done through neutrinos. And they can pass right through the stellar material, material at almost the speed of light, while the radiation gets clogged up. Think about how radiation has to escape from inside the sun, right? It can take 100,000 years for a photon to go from the core of the sun to the outside of the sun. So the neutrinos get a head start. They are generated in the supernova explosion. They zip through the stellar material, and then they get a couple of hour head start before the radiation starts to arrive. And that's why, in theory, we should be able to see we should be able to see the neutrinos before we see the radiation. Uh, the next comment that I got a lot of was, hey, dummy. Um, again, this is sort of the gist of it is like, if we see Betelgeuse explode today, uh, that means it actually happened 640 years ago. Yeah, obviously. Um, but the point is, and I've mentioned this on a previous um, show, uh, that there's no concept of objective time in the universe, right? So, uh, and that's because obviously, you know, we experience an event here on Earth, Betelgeuse exploding 640 years ago. So we're seeing the light that left Betelgeuse 640 years ago. But that all depends on your relative motion to the events that you're observing. So for a neutrino that is traveling close to the speed of light and experiencing enormous amounts of time dilation, it sees time differently. It marks the moment that this event happened differently. In fact, every single moving object in the entire universe is experiencing a different passage of time compared to each other event. And so there's no way to say objectively, this is when an event happened. Instead, you, you measure things by when they're observed. So when we see the, the explosion of Betelgeuse, then we know that it happened in the past. And from our perspective, it happened 640 years ago. But from someone else's perspective, it might have only happened 300 years ago or 200 years ago. And it's all just because of their speed. So, um, so the shorthand that, that I use, and I've explained this many times before, is that we just, we just, uh, we say now, based on the observation date, because otherwise it's a gigantic rabbit hole. And it is more accurate to say, this is what's happening now, as opposed to this is what's happening, depending on the speed that you're going and this amount of time dilation, etc. You know, two halves of the universe experience the Big Bang by about 30,000 years apart from each other, purely because of their relative speeds to each other, their velocities, and that's just from time dilation. So um, the more accurate way to describe this is to just say it's happening now. And, and that is the shorthand for not having to go into the deeper version. But obviously, um, you know, lots of people, uh, you know, need to correct people on the internet. And then the last thing is, of course, my pronunciation. Um, and I say Betelgeuse, other people say Betelgeuse. Um, and I've heard Betelgeuse, Betelgeuse, and, and yeah, and the pronunciation uh, is flexible. Um, the you know thanks to the movie, 
it's Betelgeuse, 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 but before that, a lot of astronomers referred to it as Betelgeuse, and the original term is Arabic, and I should really get, you know, get some uh, Arabic astronomers to describe the name. So um, I, I don't think it's a great use of people's time to correct people's pronunciation, especially because I'm Canadian and I pronounce everything wrong, eh? All right, so let's get into any questions that you have for me. So Madara Uchiwa says, I know gravitational waves are said to travel at the speed of light, but I'm asking, can they travel at the speed of light? What is the difference? Um, they, uh, they do travel at the speed of light, therefore they can travel at the speed of light. Um, one of the wonderful things about the Kilanova explosion that was seen back in 2017 was that astronomers saw the gravitational waves and the radiation from the explosion arrive here on Earth, essentially at at the same time at the right time to tell you that they're both moving at the speed of light. The reality is the gravitational waves arrived a little bit before the radiation. And that was because the gravitational waves were from the two stars spinning around each other um, moments before they exploded. And then the radiation was when the stars actually exploded. So you got the gravitational waves from that chirp of them spinning around each other, and then the, the radiation coming from their explosion, and they were perfect. So they arrived uh, exactly at the, you know, at the speeds that they should. Um, oh, and you're asking, so Madera says, why can't they travel faster than the speed of light? Um, they just don't. They, 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 you know, according to Einstein's predictions, uh, gravitational gravity moves at the speed of light. And this, this real live event proved that it was true. So that was the thing that was really exciting. Um, time of dying zero zero. Jupiter sends out a ton of radiation, but is that unique to Jupiter or do all the gas giants do this? Could humans live in the atmosphere of other gas giants? So the radiation at Jupiter is actually the trapped radiation of its magnetosphere. Uh, Earth has a magnetosphere and uh, Jupiter has a magnetosphere. And the magnetosphere comes from on Earth, it comes from the rotation of the metallic core inside the Earth. And that creates a, a dynamo that creates this magnetosphere. And Jupiter has a core of metallic hydrogen, which serves that same function, it's rotating inside Jupiter, and it generates this, it acts like a dynamo and generates these, these magnetic fields around the entire planet. And um, and that's and so and then the radiation is actually it's solar radiation that's coming from the sun, these particles that are then captured from the solar wind by Jupiter, and then they're spun around in this magnetosphere. And that's the danger. And yeah, um, as long as a planet has a magnetosphere, it's going to create this pocket, the sphere of trapped radiation. Um, Mars doesn't have one, Venus doesn't seem to have one, but Jupiter, I think Saturn has one, Saturn has auroras. So um, each of the planets, if they can have a, a some method of, of a dynamo inside of them, they can generate a planet wide magnetosphere. And the one on Jupiter is, is crazy big. So um, <laughs> from Kim, uh, Fraser, I have a question. Since we can tear, since we think we can terraform Mars, but if we're able to, why not terraform Earth to a better place? So obviously we are terraforming. We are Venus forming Earth right now. We're making it more like Venus. 
And in theory, there is like a perfect temperature for maximum diversity on Earth. Um, and we don't know necessarily what that would be, but eventually we could probably figure that out. And if we want to take the time and put in the energy, we could probably make Earth that perfect temperature. The problem is that if you make Earth that perfect temperature, that will be bad for all of the existing life on Earth and pretty much all of the human civilization on Earth, right? All the people who live on coastal cities are going to have their homes inundated, all of the various life forms that have adapted to the certain kinds of environments that they have, they're going to struggle, some will adapt, some will die. So, so you can't do it without creating an enormous amount of carnage. So for now, for what we understand, the best temperature is like the one we know and the one that we've all adapted our cities to and life forms to and then if you wanted to tinker with it then you would want to go very slowly and very carefully to both let um, cities adapt let places adapt but also let life forms adapt and move to places where they're more uh you know they can still um remain alive so i do not recommend this kind of geoengineering uh effect but if we go into say you know worse global warming if we go into some kind of new ice age we may want to mess with the climate to try and minimize its impact on on everything that's good about the earth today um Sean Marson says, Hey, Fraser, and Happy New Year. If our gravity well were just a little bit bigger, we couldn't escape to explore. Do you think that there could be another civilization out there fighting the rocket equation? Um, definitely, if, say, the gravity of Earth was double, uh, you'd have a lot of difficulty escaping from Earth. I think uh, I've seen someone did the math that you you would essentially need like an Apollo 11 or sorry, like like a Saturn V rocket to launch a Sputnik satellite out into space. So even if you had double the gravity, it would still be possible to launch spacecraft off of the Earth, just incredibly expensive, require an enormous amount of energy investment and, and so on to be able to do it. Maybe it would even still be possible at say three times Earth gravity, but beyond that, you pretty much wouldn't be able to do it. So it's a it will be more and more of a of a challenge. Even say if it if gravity was 10% harder, it would be significantly more difficult for us to make it to space. So we're actually very fortunate that we have as low of a gravity as we do here on Earth compared to how bad it could be out there around other planets. And it's kind of sad to think that there are there could be civilizations living on worlds, super Earths with enormous gravity, and they can never leave the planet because the gravity wells are so hard. But then maybe they'll put in a ton of work and they'll figure out how to make metallic hydrogen work or or antimatter for for rockets or they'll develop fusion rockets. Like it's just with chemical rockets the rocket equation is brutal for gra more gravity than we have today, but maybe for other kinds of fuel sources that are maybe more compact, more energy efficient, it might work. Um, let's see. Jameson 1776, would you rather see NASA program that was going to capture a near Earth object or the Artemis project? Um, <laughs> so I don't think, let me see. So the near Earth object approach, 
you grab a rock, you bring it back to earth and you study it. And you, by doing so, you learn to go to a rock. You learn to uh, change the orbit of a space rock, which potentially would be useful for the future. If we ever get, you know, have some dangerous asteroid coming our way. Um, you learn to extract resources from a low gravity environment. So there's a lot of really good lessons learned there. Um, Artemis, you're going to the moon, which is close. You're going to be learning to extract resources from the surface of the moon. Um, it's a solid base. There's gravity there. So, but there's not a lot to do on the moon beyond some, some basic science. So I think I would probably choose missions to asteroids. I don't know if I would think that redirecting an asteroid back to the earth is the best plan. I would probably just have a mission, an Artemis sized mission to the easiest asteroid that I could get to. So that's what I would probably do. Links links off. Hey, Fraser, I know you're a gamer. What would be your dream space game? I, I don't know. I, I think my dream space game has been made and I dare not play it. Um, and there's and there's like a, a bunch of these right these sort of space based massively multiplayer games where you build a spaceship and you run it you know going in, get into combat and create huge uh, empires and uh, alliances with other people and I don't have the time for that and I know that I just get sucked into any of those any of those games so I actually try to limit the games that I play I've been getting back into RimWorld much to my detriment it's such a good game so whatever is the next version of RimWorld I think is is my is my perfect game I have never found a game that I really enjoy as much as as RimWorld um, Destiny. I played Destiny. Wasn't a huge fan of Destiny. I mean, I played it a lot, but um, Janelle Duncan, could other planets have oil deposits? Well, oil is caused by plant life here on Earth. So for us to be able to find oil, um, yeah, a couple of people were mentioning it. Eve Online. Yeah, no way. I, can't, I played Eve Online and I was like, nope, I can't touch this. I can't play this game. This is too dangerous. Um, so, uh, yeah, so oil is created by plant life that's been compressed down and smushed inside the earth. And so you would need to have plant life to be able to get oil, but you've got things like hydrocarbons that are on Titan that are formed in, in other ways. So in theory, you could have hydrocarbons in other places, but you wouldn't want to be able to have free oxygen in the atmosphere or that stuff would all just light on fire. So um, to have what we have here on Earth, you would need to have some kind of geology that's very similar to what we have, Earth, have on Earth. So you don't have to worry about us uh, going to other planets to take its oil. Arjon, uh, do you think that math is universal? Not that it works everywhere, but that any intelligent life would come up with it. Yeah, I, I think that that math because math my kids and I actually had an argument about this today well not an argument conversation um which was uh this classic uh, Katy Perry quote uh a question to Neil deGrasse Tyson about whether or not math uh, and science have anything to do with each other and math is a concept created by human beings right there's no there's no 
true reality to math, right? There's no such thing as the number two. It's not a real thing in the world. It's just a concept that we use. And yet we can use math to make predictions about the universe that are incredibly accurate. And a lot of those, those underlying scientific concepts are just part of nature. And some of the things you actually could communicate through math, things like primary numbers or the ratio of pi or, um, you know, various fundamental things in physics. And in fact, a lot of the things in physics now uh, have some underlying number based on reality, like, I, and I forget exactly what it is like, like a second is some number of oscillations of a cesium atom, and a kilogram is some number of atoms of a certain kind and distance and so on and so forth, right. And so we could provide these measurements, and they could measure the oscillations of a cesium atom, and they could come up with a time system that matches ours. And they could measure the number of atoms and come up with mass that matches ours. And so we could communicate a lot of science and eventually more complicated things purely through with just just the laws of physics as a baseline. So yeah, I would think that um, that it would be expected that that if we came across aliens, they would understand math in kind of the way we do. And they may have some math that we don't understand yet. Um, but only because the math, you know, that the universe is the same, wherever you go, more or less. And so I think that that would be that would be our common language. Michael Stinson, Fraser, what are you currently reading? Do you have any favorite sci-fi novels? I am currently rereading the Foundation series, and then I'm also reading the Culture series. So I'm up to book four on the Foundation series, and then and then I'm going to read. When I finish that, I'm going to read the next book in the Culture series. I read the first one, Consider Plebis, and then I'm going to go on to the next one. And I hear the I love the Foundation books, although they don't quite hold up as much as I remember, like the first foundation book just blew my mind when I first read about thinking about how to think far into the future and how you could predict what human beings are going to do um, over long periods of time. But then when you actually like read the books, they're, they're not great. They're fine. They're fine. But the concept was so wonderful that I just that I just love it. It really sort of scratches my itch. The same thing that would suck me in and never let me out of Eve online, which is just and why I like Roomworld, sort of this colony management, I'm a project manager at heart. That 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 was sort of my original job is was I you know, software project management. And so I, I find that concept very fascinating. But I'm trying to read a lot more. So definitely, uh, if there are books and series that you like, also on the list is definitely going to be the, uh, you know, Leviathan wakes and the rest of the expanse books. So I've got quite a backlog of books. It's funny how little we read and how easy it is to read. You know, we read a lot of just nonsense. Like we read Twitter and we read email and it would be nice to spend more time reading books. So that's my, I'm not, I'm not going to say that's a new year's resolution because I've been doing this for the last four or five months. I've gone through probably 10 books, um, in the last two months. So that's, but that I'm going to try and keep going more books. Um, <clears throat> a 59 X, what kind of pictures will James Webb telescope be able to take? Um, we did a, 
whole video on James Webb and what James Webb is going to do. Um, and it's going to be taking infrared images. So if you look at pictures that come from the Spitzer Space Telescope or say the Herschel Space Telescope, that's the gist of the kinds of pictures that we're going to be seeing, but much farther away, much higher resolution, much better pictures. So uh, go and look at what happens in Spitzer, maybe look in Herschel and even some of the infrared images that are taken by um, some of the ground-based telescopes, like the very large telescope when it takes infrared images. But essentially, objects that are warm, not hot, so you're going to see newly forming uh, stars encased in gas and dust, planets orbiting other stars. You're going to see galaxies, which are incredibly redshifted, almost out to the edge of the observable universe. Those are the things that, um, that James Webb will, will be able to see. Matt Doring, uh, what is your more realistic expectation in terms of a timeline as to when we'll put humans on Mars? I think that right now with our current ability to actually do all the details of living on Mars, it is very unwise to send any human beings to Mars for any purpose whatsoever. So definitely not by 2022, 2024. Um, that sounds dangerous. Just because like, how will toilets work? And how will we get food and so on and so forth, right? I mean, to prove that the fuel system to create on Mars is going to be able to work and bring people home. So I would say realistically, sometime in the mid um, 2030s is when I think we'll see the first human set foot on Mars. Um, and it'll just be like, like, it'll probably be like a SpaceX Starship that's going to carry that will dock or land right beside the a previous starship that already is fueled up and ready to go. They'll spend maybe a month on the surface, and then we'll come home. And then the next group will go um, and land and do the year version of it or the, the almost two years version of it. So let me pick a date then 2036 is when I think the first human will set foot on, uh, on Mars, but we'll see. I, we should do a, we should do a poll. I think, you know, where everyone guesses a date and we write it down somewhere and then we just keep hanging out and find out what happens. Um, F zero. Did you catch John Michael Godey's video on the wow signal? I did not, but I want to give a shout out to John Michael Godier for uh, for interviewing the researchers who found the wow signal. So you should definitely go check it out. Kim Fraser, I'm following you for a long time. You never get older. How do you do that? Uh, you should look at my older videos. I definitely get older. I get a bigger yeah, under my eyes. Um, I've lost quite a bit of weight since uh, some of the earlier videos. So maybe those two things are kind of going hand in hand. Um, but still, yeah, no, I'm good to see it. You just watch yourself get older on, on, on video year after year. Boy, you should go back to when I started this like 20 years ago. I was just a baby. Um, 
Neil Yu, how many different companies will have their own Starlink constellations? Man, that's a great question. Uh, we're definitely going to have Starlink, and I think we're going to see the Amazon uh, competition to that launch, and they've got their own rocket, so there's no reason to believe that they're not going to do that. And then both companies will probably make money by helping launch other people's constellations. So I would say there's definitely a market for, like, I think for those of us who have internet, like where I live, I've got two choices for internet. I can get from Shaw or I can get it from TELUS. And that's not enough choices. And I know for a lot of people, they only have one. They only have like Comcast or something like that. And that's definitely not enough choices. So I would say we should have three to four choices for internet, satellite, satellite internet, high speed. That would be my preference at least. And that's a lot of satellites. And that's a lot of constellations, which I know is going to be a problem. Um, Veggie2009, I appreciate your description of how you collect questions in the previous QA video. Yeah, so for those of you who missed it, I actually dropped a new QA video about 40 minutes ago, 45 minutes ago, uh, just to do so. Um, so uh, just to get it out of the way before we uh, get on the airplane and leave for, for Honolulu. And, and one of the questions was how I pulled together the questions for the question show. And it's getting harder and harder and harder. It used to be I could collect all the questions for a question show in about you know, 10 minutes. And now it probably takes me two hours because I am double checking new questions to just make sure that they are different from the questions that I've already answered because I sort of imagine people are have this collective understanding and they get a little bored with me answering the same questions again and again and again. Now I get the same questions again and again, but I'm happy to jump in and answer them just in the comments. But it's I'm looking for the new stuff. I'm always looking for something that's totally different. So uh, if you've got new questions, by all means, throw them my way, especially now when I need to take them to the uh, to the American Astronomical Society meeting. Um, Eric 2000, will you do a future collaboration with Isaac Arthur again in the near future? Uh, as I say to all recommendations about me doing collaborations anytime, anywhere, I am ready to collaborate. Um, it, there was, I was recently interviewed on the skeptic's guide to the universe. And that was, someone said, you should go on the skeptic's guide to the universe, like anytime, anywhere. So I'm always happy to do collaborations. If you ever want to, if you do a podcast, you want to interview uh, me on your podcast, happy to do it. Um, if you make space videos here on YouTube and you want more people watching your videos, then let me know and uh, we'll do a collaboration so that I can get more attention on your channel. The more that I can do to get more people seeing uh, space videos, the better. You'll have to answer a question though on my question show. That's the terrible price that you have to pay. Giovanni Falmouth, space-based internet is so much more expensive than ground-based. How could it ever compete? This is not your grandpa's space-based internet. This is a whole new space-based internet of low-cost satellites being launched 60 at a time, uh, very low altitude, very uh, tight beam uh, transmission, and the speeds are going to be just incredibly high. So Jack T-Rex says, go on our ludicrous future. Anytime, anywhere, I'm happy to go on uh, our ludicrous future. Joe, Tim, Invite me. I'm there. I'll be there. 
Um, William Bays, since James Webb will be kept in a super cold, will it be extra fragile? Would even a small impact destroy it? Um, no, no, it's not going to be super fragile. I mean, it's regular fragile. Um, the, uh, like if it gets hit by a piece of space junk, it could cause a big problem, but it's not like it's going to be extra brittle because it's going to be kept cold. Um, and you know, the developers are absolutely anticipating that there's going to be punctures in the, you know, in the, in the sunshade, but there'll just be a small hole that goes through and it doesn't, you know, let in too much of the radiation from the sun. So I wouldn't worry about it. Um, Nick Pacek says you should stream some RimWorld on Twitch, creating content while gaming. Win-win. Yeah, I've been thinking about that. Um, I mean, I'm pretty good at the game at this point. So I would feel not embarrassed to play the game. Like I'm playing it at the hardest difficulty and uh, I think I'm doing okay. So, so maybe I, it, it still seems super like I would rather stream the telescope than stream RimWorld. Cause I don't know, like there's lots of people that have streamed video games. So um, I think I would rather hang out and stream the, the live telescope. That's kind of like a video game, right? Um, let's see. Sorry for the silence podcast listeners. <laughs> A59X, how do you find sanity between our insignificance in comparison to the vastness of the universe and significance to exist at all? Man, I just, you just try not to. Don't think about that question. Um, you get those moments, right? Those, these moments of just like philosophical, uh, just wonder at just the scale of the universe that, that there are say 200 billion stars just in the Milky Way, that there are 2 trillion galaxies in the observable universe, the actual universe, we don't know how long it goes on for the universe has been around for 14 billion years. Um, we will live this tiny little snapshot of time and then we're gone. And the universe will go on for an incomprehensible amount of time and then it will go away. So you have these these concepts of just like wonder and amazement. And then at the same time, sadness. And uh, you just, I don't know, we live in denial. That's how we do it. I think you just, you push those thoughts back out of your head when they try to creep in. Otherwise you go mad. And, uh, you know, we got to live day to day without going absolutely crazy. So yeah, it's, it is, you can't not get into this and not be incredibly, uh, overwhelmed by how enormous and ancient and complicated and wonderful the universe is. And, and that's one of its side benefits, I think is you, it scratches that, I don't know, spirituality itch, you know, like I'm not a spiritual person, but I definitely feel those feelings when I think about the universe. Um, and fish RSA says, how should we even care about the part of the universe that we can't see considering that we'll never be able to see it anyway? Yeah. Yes, we should. Why not? 
Why not care about it? Why not think about it? Why not consider it? Right? Um, all it takes is just a little bit of energy of my brain to think about things that I can never see or do. But it doesn't, you know, it doesn't bring about the heat death of the universe any sooner. So why not? Why not contemplate? I, people always um, make this comment on my channel. They're like, why should we even bother thinking about blah, 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 when we could be doing, I don't know, like, so why should we even think about terraforming Venus or, or uh, exploring other worlds when we can't even feed humans here on Earth? Well, we're just thinking, right? Like, why think about philosophy? Why think about poetry? Why make art? You just, it's all just versions of thinking. And why judge which versions of thinking are more useful than others? I agree when you're actually, you know, extracting resources, pumping pollution, building rockets, causing an impact on other human beings lives and animals lives and so on, then you need to be considering the consequences and make sure that what you're doing is best for as many people in the planet as, as possible. But when you're just thinking, it's fine. Why not? It's fun. Uh, Larry Beckham, oh, what to think about the 100 disappearing stars? I, I'm going to need a link. Um, I haven't like come across the story. Uh, I saw it briefly. Um, but I would, I think we need to cover it and maybe I'll cover it as a video. So if someone's got like a really definitive link that they like about this idea, I'll check it out. <laughs> Brian Yuku says, can we agree on the Hubble constant yet? No, we can't. Unfortunately, um, it, multiple measurements that are highly accurate uh, disagree on the Hubble constant. So until someone figures that out, uh, we will have to just disagree on the Hubble constant. Uh, Red mist has magnetism got a speed. Yeah, magnetism moves at the speed of light, right? Electromagnetism. So magnetism is is electricity. And in fact, if you go back to the beginning of the universe, all of the forces, the strong force, the weak force, electromagnetic force, they are all just facets of the same thing. Uh, Evolution Inc. It's kind of an open question. Uh, if you had your own FTL starship, what's number one, your galactic bucket list to visit? I uh, I don't even know, um, like the weird part about this, right? Is I don't know the answer to that question because we don't have enough information. If you ask me things that I would want to know about here inside the solar system, I've got a lot of things. Like I want to see Olympus Mons up close and I want to see, um, uh, I would love to see Iapetus with its weird half and half moon. I want to see the rings of Saturn, but I want to like pass right through the rings of Saturn. I want to see what's going on on Triton. Like, why does it have geysers? Well, I would like to see some of these geysers on, on Europa. But if it's like out there in the universe and you could take an FTL, the thing is like, we don't know enough information about what's interesting. Like, yeah, I'd love to see the accretion disc and the event horizon around a black hole. And I would like to see another planet to another star system to know how it's different or similar to the, to the earth. But it's, but it's like, we need more 
information to know where to take our FTL drive. Unless it's instant, and then you just go anywhere you want, right? So, um, but still, it's you can see it's like we don't even know what we don't even know, and that's why it's so exciting. <laughs> Next stop, everywhere. Um, F zero. Do black holes ever run out of energy? Well, black holes evaporate, so over really long periods of time, black holes will eventually give up all of their matter, give up all of their black holeness. Um, and they will evaporate away. And so then you could say that they've run out of energy. <laughs> That's a great question, man. Brian Yuku, what would you ask your Mr. Meeseeks to do? Uh, if you haven't seen Mr. Meeseeks is an episode from Rick and Morty. Uh, I don't think it makes sense to ask a Meeseeks to do anything. Very dangerous, clearly. I wouldn't, I wouldn't touch a Meeseeks with a 10-foot pole. Clearly, it's just going to end in a in a gunfight, a knife fight. Um, let's see. Pup three fourteen. Is it possible that black holes eat not only matter and energy but also eat space time? Not that we can tell. A black hole is definitely embedded in space time. So it essentially. <clears throat> I brought the water this time. So a black hole definitely um, uh, works like like a black hole is a is a highly dense object in space and time, like the sun, like the Earth, but just more so. But it is still embedded in space time, just like any other object. So it's not like it's actually gobbling up and consuming. Now, if you get within the event horizon, space time is twisted up in a way that all roads lead to the singularity, but it's not like it's sucking in more space time from outside the space time that it's already tangled up with. Um, let's see. There was a question there. Um, okay. So a uh, beige price says, um, how important would tectonics be for life being possible in other worlds? We don't know, of course, because we only have one example of a planet with plate tectonics, which has life, which is here on Earth. Um, we know that there's no plate tectonics on Venus. And for some reason, the planet turned itself inside out um, on a regular, maybe on a regular basis. So that was bad for life. Plate tectonics is a big deal. It helps regulate the amount of carbon that gets out into the atmosphere. So the rock cycle is a, is a, is a big contributor, brings fresh uh, material up to the surface. So definitely one of the requirements or one of the considerations for life could be plate tectonics. That said, we only have a sample of one, so we don't know. Maybe life has found a way in other worlds to work without plate tectonics in a way that we haven't <clears throat> we haven't thought of yet. So more research is necessary. All of, we need to see those places. Then I'll take the FTL drive, go to those places, and try to figure it out. Um, Sean Marson, uh, is there an upper limit to the number of satellites that we can place in low Earth orbit, and are we approaching it? I mean, obviously, of course, there is an eventually an upper limit, but space is really, really big. So as long as you keep the spacecraft in orbits, which are safely away from each other, and you're very careful about about it, then you shouldn't have a risk that your satellite constellations are going to run into each other. And especially the low ones, 
they are so low that they will deorbit themselves within a couple of years if they don't have constant thrust that's keeping them pushed up. A lot of people are really worried about the Starlink and other constellations for space junk, but in fact, they're like the least worrisome satellites that we could have because they're so low. It's the higher ones like the GPS satellites, some various military satellites, weather satellites that are at a higher altitude that are going to remain in orbit for thousands of years that are actually a bigger risk than the low Earth orbit. And so you can imagine maybe the best solution to minimizing space junk is to only have low Earth orbit satellites, stuff that's only 500, 600 kilometers in altitude. And because you could you could do the same job. Like the only reason we have a telecommunications like a, a television satellite out at geosynchronous orbit is because that was the technology at the time uh, or a weather satellite like the GOES satellites, which are observing hemisphere of the Earth. Imagine if you built a weather, a network of weather satellites that were in low Earth orbit. So it might very well be that the um, that the best thing to do is for us to build uh, everything as a low Earth orbiting satellite. And then the worst case scenario is they just they just come back to the Earth when their uh, life is over. Um, all right. Let's see. Apologies again to people listening to this as a podcast as I look for the next question. So, so just in general, like a lot of people are asking, like, how come Fraser hasn't answered my question? Uh, it's nothing personal. There are uh, 70, there's 80 new questions have been posted since I started this show, right? So, and I have been able to answer maybe 20. So just like the chances are that I'm only going to answer 25% of the questions, maybe less. So I, I apologize. Um, but, but I, I try to answer them as quickly as I can. Um, all right. L disc, what is the biggest threat posed to humanity by an object in space? Is that even an answerable question? Yeah. The most tangible risk that we face right now from something in space is probably from the sun in which is a, um, you know, some solar flare that comes off the sun that fries our uh, parts of our electrical grid and causes disruption. And, you know, the biggest one that happened in recent memory was called the Carrington event. Worse solar flares than that can happen. And one of these solar flares could cause a serious problem here on Earth. So I would say that is the biggest tangible threat that we face right now. There's no supernova nearby, they're going to go off that are going to cause us a problem. Asteroids. Yeah, it could happen, but actually rarely one that will cause significant global damage. But solar flares are bad. And it's just a matter of time before one hits us. Um, Esther Gagne, Fraser, what's your take on the environmental impact of new technologies, depletion of resources in relation to the future of space exploration? Um, so I, I'm trying to understand the question a bit. Like, are you concerned about the environmental impact of technologies on other planets or the environmental impact on Earth? I mean, one of the wonderful things about 
uh, sort of getting your materials from space is that you don't have to pull them from the Earth. And so you dismantle an asteroid and you get all of the material of that asteroid without having to dig up a forest, without having to pollute the rivers, without having to pump your emissions out into the atmosphere. You just got, you know, it's just space. It's a rock and there's, it's impossible for us to pollute space itself. So, so I think that the sooner we can get to a point where we are harvesting our resources from space itself, the better. Thanks for putting the little check marks, moderators for putting little check marks to the questions I've already answered. That is so awesome. I love this. Um, Peter Van Ober Obergen, uh, Starlink will be a problem for astronomers. Uh, yes, yes, Starlink is going to be a problem for astronomers. It is already a problem for astronomers. And when there are eventually tens of thousands of, uh, of, of uh, satellites up there, uh, they're going to be streaking through every picture that we take. And it is going to be worse for astronomers. But <laughs> uh, all of humanity getting access to the internet will be good for astronomers, you know, in a roundabout way. So I think it all just comes down to how good, uh, how does do these satellite constellations provide access to underserved people around the world? And if they do a good job of it, then then it's worth paying the price of having having to pull trails out of your photos, which astronomers already do, right? When I take astrophotos, I have to pull airplane trails out of my photos. I have to pull satellite trails out of my photos. I have, and then I have to pull clouds passing through out of my photos. So this is just what's going to happen. Uh, look at light pollution right? Like light pollution is a scourge to astronomy. And yet people like lights outside. And I guess not me, right? It should be dark all the time, but still. Uh, so humanity has decided that lights outside are better than being able to take nice pictures of space. Kim asks, Fraser, string theory, science or philosophy? Um, I have no opinion. I'm not a, but you know, the conversations that I have with with mathematicians and physicists are string theory is beautiful mathematics that could predict, could help understand how gravity connects with uh, quantum mechanics. But so far, uh, there's no tangible evidence and possibly no way to test it. So until someone comes up with a way to test it, it's just interesting math and an interesting theory, which is great. I mean, we should, again, that goes back to the, it's just thinking and there's nothing wrong with just thinking. Um, now simulation hypothesis, is that science or philosophy? Uh, again, that is philosophy, right? Um, the, the, the possibility that we live in a simulation is, is a very compelling idea. And clearly as our computers get better, we make better and better simulations. It becomes more and more possible that we it could be living in a simulation. And yet there's no way to test. There's no way to know. And therefore, uh, we just have to act like our lives are real and not in a simulation. And then you win either way. Unless someone resets the simulation. Dennis W. Hi, and greetings from Germany. Could you recommend a good price value telescope getting into astronomy? Um, I recall, I mean, this is going to be the nature of a whole bunch of what I do in the future, but I'll give you the quick answer. 
Um, the uh, Tol Trollson, yes, I read your comments. Um, okay, so um, telescope. All right, I'm going to tell you the dirty secret in astronomy. All right, in, in amateur astronomy. So here it is. You ready for this? All right. If you buy a telescope, there are only three things to look at. So um, there's, so if you buy like a small telescope, something like, like that, right? Uh, you're going to look at the moon, you're going to look at Saturn, and you're going to look at Jupiter. And those three things are absolutely worth buying a small telescope for. They're incredible. They will blow your mind. They will, they will transport you to these other worlds and you will be watching them and they will be wonderful. But if you want to see anything else in the sky, it's a mediocre experience. I really like globular star clusters and I like some, uh, some double stars and multiple star systems that you can see with the telescope. Galaxies suck. Nebulae uh, mostly suck. Uh, you know, maybe the, um, uh, you know, a planetary nebula is okay, but a like a diffuse emission nebula, reflection nebula, not great. And so to really get deep into astronomy with your own telescope, you're going to want to get into astrophotography. And that is a completely different pathway. So my recommendation to everybody is buy a Dobsonian telescope, a like an eight inch Dobsonian, maybe a six inch Dobsonian. Either one is going to be fine. They're cheap, a couple hundred dollars, and they give you a beautiful view of those three things that you're going to look at Saturn, Jupiter, and the moon. And you can see them in like, no matter how bad the light pollution is in your city, you can see those three things. Your view from downtown New York city of Saturn, Jupiter, and the moon is going to be almost as good as a person who lives in very dark skies. So, so everyone should own one right now. Uh, I don't own one, but everybody else should, uh, I'll buy one. I'll get one. But then if you want to do the astrophotography, that is that's when the universe really opens up to you. That's when you get a chance to see all these incredible objects in the way they're meant to be seen. But it is you're looking at 1000s of dollars, right? $3,000 for sort of a starting telescope that'll, that'll make you really happy with taking pictures of, of space. And then you're looking at more, 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 more. So starter telescope, buy a Dobsonian, a six inch or an eight inch Dobsonian. Don't spend more than a couple hundred dollars. Enjoy those things that you can see. And then, um, if you still want to keep rolling, then by all means, uh, you know, reach out when, when you want to talk about astrophotography rigs and we'll have that conversation. It's going to get expensive. Michael Stinson. Um, Fraser, do you think the humans will ever establish an independent population elsewhere in or out of the solar system, not entirely reliant on earth? Yeah. Oh, okay. So, I mean, the big question is the, um, I mean, we don't know what the future of humanity is going to look like, right? I mean, are we still going to be human beings in 200 years if computers continue to accelerate at the rate that we are? So that's still a, a big unknown. So let's assume that for some reason we reach the end of computer development and we don't merge with our computer consciousness and become this free floating robotic AI that transcends existence and flies to other worlds. 
right? And then like, what, is, what does it mean to be a robot that exists? You know, you got solar power, that's all you need. So, um, but let's just say we're still made of meat, right? Then, uh, yeah, I think that at some point in the future, as we get more powerful technology, as we get more infrastructure in space, it becomes easier and better uh, for humanity to live out in space. We've got various resources that are coming together. Uh, we've got methods of manufacturing, we've understood the dangers and we know how to mitigate for them. And eventually it just gets easier and better for us to live in, in space itself, uh, or on the moon or on Mars. But I do think that it is going to be farther out for significant populations than people are expecting. But eventually there will be this tipping point when we have solved all the problems, we've made it a lot easier, and then the vast majority of humanity will live off planet Earth and not here on Earth. Eventually, it just makes sense. So and I don't know when that's going to happen, but it is hundreds of years into the future. Um, so Eric 2000, you keep asking about the E8 theory, I have no idea what that is. So I apologize. Um, Larry Beckham, uh, what protection does the Orion ship provide for astronauts against solar flares? So, so the Orion, the plan for protecting uh, the astronauts on board the Orion capsule for solar flares is to build a fort inside the Orion capsules, so they're going to take all of their stuff, all of their water, all of their supplies, all of the metal, and they're going to build a little fort inside the Orion capsule, and then they'll get inside, and they will hunker down and they'll wait for the solar storm to pass. That's the plan. Um, all right, I think we're almost at the end, I got time for probably like one more question. Um, so I was asking a question about the retro reflectors. Um, I don't know the difference actually between the Apollo and the Soviet ones. It's interesting. If anyone does know the answer, that would be great. Let's see. Uh, Arjone, if a supernova goes off nearby, how long is it dangerous? Minutes, days, weeks? It, well, it all depends on the distance, right? So you really need a supernova to go off within a few dozen light years of Earth. And if it does, then, then what the damage that it does is it blows away the ozone layer of planet Earth. Um, and so then you have no, uh, no ozone layer, and then we all get irradiated. So that's the danger. Um, Damien Reloaded says, how is Consider Plebis going? Uh, I finished it. I liked it. Uh, great book. Um, and I hear it's very different and weird from the rest of the culture series. So I'm really looking forward to the rest of the, um, the culture series. Okay, so this is probably the end of the of the hour. So now I'm going to uh, wrap things up. Thanks everyone for asking all of your questions. Thanks for the moderators. And a big hi to everyone who's watching over on Twitch and all the people who are watching uh, on YouTube. Thanks for all the new people who showed up from the Betelgeuse video. Um, I hope you enjoyed that video and I hope you've been starting to dig through the back content. We got more than a thousand videos for you to enjoy. So catch up. Um, uh, the next time you see me, uh, it will probably be from Honolulu, where we will be attending the American Astronomical Society meeting. So uh, I really looking forward to bringing back as much content as I can for us all to enjoy. So uh, thanks, everyone. And uh, may or I, 
I don't know if I can find fast internet. I'll do, I'll try to do a live show with maybe a guest from the AAS uh, next week. All right. We'll see you all later.